Hey. We're finished cleaning the bathroom. We're leaving. See? That didn't take too long. Thank you, girls. Now go and have a good time, all right? Bye. See? You don't need all the conflict. Note to Claire, if you want intense family drama, rent Spy Kids. They saved their parents' lives. You think they would have done that if they got yelled at all the time? Sweet and sour chicken! Girls! Get back! Gotta fix that step. You poked the bear, girls! You poked him! Good morning, Hope Ames. My name is Danny Householder. I'm a pastor here. I'm so glad that we're here gathered together to worship today. And really, I, I, I am so glad that you're here. I don't feel forced to be here with you. Uh, sometimes we feel like we're forced to love our families, because let's be honest, sometimes families are hard to love. And maybe I won't ask you this morning, does anybody here have a family that's difficult to love? Maybe you could just admit, is it ever hard for my family to love me? Sometimes, yeah, it's hard for my family to love me. But the truth is, as Christians, we don't get an excuse. We have to love. You heard this in the Bible reading today. It says, really love each other. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Love each other with genuine affection. You don't get to fake it. Now, there's a word that shows up for love, but it's not just in the English where it shows up once and it's love and we hear it and we think love. Okay, we have one word for love and that's what it is. In the Greek, in the New Testament, there were actually four different words for the word love. Now, in this passage alone, just in this verse, the word love shows up three times and it's used in three different contexts with three different words. And I think that this is really fascinating. The first one where it shows up is really love them. It's a word that maybe you've heard about before if you've been in church circles. It is agape. Everyone say agape. Now agape is this self-sacrificing love. It is divine love. Agape is the kind of love that describes Jesus' love for us, that describes the Father's love for us poured out through the blood of Jesus on the cross. It is perfect, self-sacrificing love and is the love that pours through us as we sacrifice and become selfless for those around us. So there is agape love, and that shows up in Romans chapter 12 when it says, really love people. Then here's the second uh, form of love that shows up. This is Philadelphia. Go ahead and say Philadelphia. Yeah, now you know what it means. Brotherly love is what Philadelphia literally means. I guess in Pennsylvania they didn't get the memo, am I right? Anyway, um, we have family in Philadelphia. I have nothing against them. It's fine. Um, but it's brotherly love. It's friendship. Now, agape and Philadelphia love, these are the kinds of love where it's love by choice. It's affectionate love. It's easy love. It just kind of comes naturally. It just happens. You just want it. You have this affection that maybe you're giving out of self-sacrifice, and maybe there's also an affection that's you're attracted to give to somebody else. But, but then there's the third kind of love that shows up in this passage, and it is Philostargus. Everyone say Philostargus. Philostargus. It kind of probably sounds the least pretty of all the words, but it's, it's family love and it's bondedness. And when you hear that at first, you think, oh, family love, bondedness, that's beautiful. But if we're being completely honest, we know the phrase where it says you don't get to choose your family, but you have to love them. <laughs> So I chose this picture for Philip Stargus, but I think this one's more accurate. <laughs> Sometimes 
Like, we don't really want to be around our family. This is the kind of love where you wouldn't love these people, you wouldn't be around these people if you didn't just so happen to be placed with them. That's the truth. I got a text from my cousin last night, and he said, man, I'm thinking about you. I'm at a country music concert. I'm like, you don't even know me. But I texted him back. I'm like, I love you, man. I can't wait till we can get back together and, and, uh, and hang out again. We, we, we don't have a lot in common other than the fact that we're family. That, that's what the family of God is supposed to be like. One thing that I find so fascinating about the family of God is we are very diverse. We've got a lot of different perspectives, lots of different backgrounds. One of the privileges of being a pastor in Ames, I get to get together with other pastors in Ames. I get to get together with other pastors in Iowa and across the country. It's really awesome. And we're a part of different denominations. We have different perspectives, different ideas. And yet when we talk, we could talk forever. Sometimes we talk honestly about things we disagree on, but we agree on one thing. It is that Jesus is Lord. And this is something that is deeper than any sort of feeling, any sort of attraction, any sort of choice. It is a family bondedness sort of love. It's the kind of love that you cannot help. It's the kind of love that as you spend that time around one another, maybe you don't get along all the time, but you cannot help but stand side by side with that person. It's who you're placed with. And you know that you're starting to grow in the true love of Christ. When you start to see that person next to you, not instead as a requirement, not instead as an obligation, but instead you actually start to see that person as, I see the good in you. If you grew up with siblings, you know that it took a while to see the good in your sibling in some situations. I grew up in a pastor's family. A lot of you know that about me and growing up in the pastor's family. Every single Christmas Eve, my brother and my sister and me, we were in the manger scene. We were shepherds. My sister was Mary. And then whichever one of the brothers wasn't a shepherd, we had to be Joseph. And when your sister's Mary, it's just awful. <laughs> you hate it. It's terrible. And at Hope at our West Des Moines campus, uh, we were going out there, we're sitting in the manger scene, and when we go to the manger scene, and I'm supposed to be Joseph, Christy is Mary, I'm not liking it, my brother is the shepherd, there's a curtain that's in front of us, the congregation can't see us yet, it's about to drop. And as the, cur as the song is playing and the curtain's about to drop, my brother and I are literally fighting, because I'm like, John, I don't want to be married to Christy again! <laughs> you kidding me? This is the fourth year in a row! You know. People are going to start to ask questions, man. We're actually fighting at the manger scene. I'm pretty sure the band could hear us screaming at one another, I hate you, Merry Christmas. <laughs> but sure enough, the curtain comes down. Silent night, holy night. Like, we're family. Like, we're, just, we're in this together. We're, we're not going anywhere. And like, it's kind of crazy. Like, we don't really want to be family with some of these people sometimes, but God says, you're family. You're I've placed you together. And for us, that's weird. But back in the day, I mean, ancient days, in the early Christian church, the outside observers would see this, and they thought it was downright insane. Take this from an ancient satirical writer. Uh, his name is Lucian of Samosata. Uh, he's a Greek, sat uh, Greek satirist, satirist, however you say that. He said, these deluded creatures, and he's speaking about Christians, have persuaded themselves that they are immortal and will live forever, which explains the contempt of death and willing self-sacrifice so common among them. It was impressed on them by Jesus, that guy, you know, that from the moment they are converted, they are all family. And they take his instructions completely on faith, with the result that they despise all the worldly goods and hold them in common ownership. Keep in mind, that was written in satire. But you hear that today and you're kind of like, I, I kind of want that love. 
It was countercultural, and it's countercultural today. It should be. Romans chapter 12 starts off with this. Do not conform. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Rethink your thinking. As Christians, we're supposed to be different. Not different in a way that says, I'm better than everyone else, but different in a way that says, this different way is actually a better way. Some of us are holding back. We're saying, I don't want to love people because it's hard, because it's uncomfortable, because I don't like it, because they're mean, because they're rude, because I didn't choose them. Whatever it might be, right? But what if it actually was a better way? It doesn't make the people better, but it's actually a better way. It follows this up in Romans chapter 12. It says, then you will learn to know God's love, or you will learn to know God's will, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Know this. Love is not comfortable. Love is not easy. Love is not necessarily just a feeling. Sometimes it is a choice, and sometimes it is a slow development. But love, because God says it is, love is good and pleasing and perfect. It changes the world. Romans chapter 12 says, really love them. So what does really loving them look like? Let's talk about it. There's four different ways that I think that Romans chapter 12 points us to really loving people. I'm going to try to get through the first few pretty quickly, and then we'll spend a good chunk of time on the last one. The first is it's unconditional. Turn to the person next to you and say, I love you unconditionally. Okay, we're working on love today, aren't we? <laughs> Some of you came here by yourself, and you're like, gosh darn it. Why does he always do this? It's unconditional, and in unconditional love, it means that there are no auditions. There are no auditions. You didn't have to try out for this. Have I told you that I have, an Addison, that I have a niece named Addison? <laughs> yes. My mom sent me this picture of Addison this morning, uh, and I, I know it's a low-quality picture, but I just thought that I had to show it because of, of what's taking place in the image. So my wife, Abby, and I, we gave, Ab we gave Addie uh, this picture album, and it's supposed to have all of her family members in it uh, so that she can recognize them. They live in Charlotte, so we're kind of far away. So when we see them, we're like, oh, well, we want her to recognize us. Uh, so it's supposed to have all the family members, but it actually just has a picture of Abby and me. Uh, <laughs> maybe we are narcissistic. I don't know. <laughs> and my mom sent me this this morning because she's out in Charlotte, my, my brother, and uh, his wife are, are heading out of town this week. My dad's going to be joining them there this week, too. And my mom sent me this picture. She goes, Addie loves her photo album. She loves it. And she says, and my mom said, and when I ask her, where's Abby? My wife, Addie, will point to Abby in the picture that's open right there. I know you can't really see it, but, but, it, but it's there. And she'll say, ah, ah, you know. I don't know if she's saying her name. She's like, there she is. This is my Aunt Abby, you know. Now, unfortunately for Addie, she, without... Clearing the audition, she, she was blessed with a very strange uncle. Um, and uh, I don't know why, I just, I thought this would be hilarious, and I, I'm starting to realize that it's kind of weird. Uh, so in our family, we're, we're Scandinavian, we're Norwegian, so we don't really have like pet names for each other, we don't really hug. Um, our way of affection is eye contact <laughs> and nodding our heads, you know. And that's totally fine by us, really. It's fine. And uh, I thought it'd be funny, like, well, what if I came up with, like, a pet name as, like, an uncle? And so I just thought of, like, what's the most hideous-sounding word I could think of? And for whatever reason, the noise that came to my, my mind was Gunter. So when John and Liz were pregnant with Addie, I, I said, hey, I want her to call me Gunter. And in my mind, I'm like, this is so funny. And Abby is like, Danny, please stop. It's not that funny. 
Like, no, really. Like, don't ever call me Gunter. And I don't, I don't know what it means. If it's like a curse word in another language, I'm so sorry. I, I really don't know. Um, but my, my mom said, you know, Danny, this morning I asked Addie, where's Gunter? And she pointed to you. And I thought, oh no, this poor child is going to be walking around preschool someday and around elementary school. And yeah, I'm going to Iowa to visit my Aunt Abby and Gunter. And they're like, what's that creature? You know? He lives in the forest and makes stews, my Gunter. I didn't audition, but hey, she got me. And I will tell you, I really do feel like there's a love between us. It's growing. It's there. She recognizes me now. I text my mom back. Like, she knows who I am. It's this unconditional kind of love. This is what it says about it in Romans chapter 12. It says, take delight in honoring each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. Let go of the pride. My mom used to always tell me, get over yourself. Everyone else has. And that sounds insensitive, but it's some of the best advice I've ever gotten. Turn to the person next to you and say, get over yourself. And now say, everyone else has. It's true. We're not too great to be around ordinary people. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, it made God so happy to make you because it made his family bigger. God loves loving you. God loves putting you in his family. God loves putting you next to that person. You're like, really? This is my family, God? Yes, really. This, this is your family. So unconditional. No auditions. That's what it means to really love them. Also really loving them, it's, it's intimate. There's truth and there's love in the intimacy of really loving them. First, let's, let's talk about the truth. This is what it says in Romans chapter 12. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. There is accountability in love. Love does not say everything that you do is okay. Love means that you love someone enough and care about someone enough to tell them the truth. I don't think you're walking in a healthy way. I don't think you're living in a healthy way. Let me tell you the truth. Now, the Bible also surprises us. And in a world where we believe that love and truth can't coexist, the Bible says love and truth have kissed, it says in the Psalms. And so we are also called to love. And Romans chapter 12 also says this. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Actually be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. When we really love people, there is truth and love. Truth and love have kissed. Righteousness and justice and grace and glory, they all come together in the love of Jesus. We get to tell people the truth, but we are always ready to help. Let me, let me tell you this. It's not love if it isn't true, but the truth isn't helpful if it's not given in love. Really loving people means that you give them the truth in love. So really loving them means that it's an intimate kind of love with love and truth. Really loving them, now number three, is it's exhausting. We can be honest about that, right? It's not easy to love me sometimes. I can admit that. I know that. Exhausting love because in love there are cheers and there are tears. Again, let's turn to the text this morning. This is in Romans chapter 12. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Loving people can be exhausting. Not just because maybe they get on your bad side every now and then. But because truly to emotionally invest in someone, in their life, in their heart, in their soul. It means that you are going through the roller coaster of life with them. The roller coaster of life. 
You join them in those hard places. And I, I, I do have to say this. I actually think sometimes it's easier to weep with people than to cheer for people. Do you ever notice that? When someone's really, really hurting, like, you can't help yourself. You're human. You stand next to them. Maybe you even cry with them. But what do you do when someone's better at something than you? Are you still cheering them on? My family, right? I didn't choose my family, but I've been blessed with my family, and I, and I love my family. At our house, we have these shelves, and on these shelves, they have all of our decorations from high school and, and from college and from growing up, and my brother has all these trophies. My sister has all these trophies at our high school to this day since the last time they've been there. My brother's picture is still in the hallway. My sister's picture is still in the hallway. You wouldn't know I attended Waukee High School. On the shelves in our parents' basement, there's trophies and medals for John. There's certificates and honors and plaques for Christy. And mine just has family pictures. <laughs> I wasn't like the best athlete. I was gritty, but I, I didn't win a lot, right? This week, my brother is going to New York City. He's been nominated for three more Emmys, and I'm so happy for him. I just want one. <laughs> no, I mean, how sick is that? Sometimes it's so easy to cry with people, but the second that they start doing better at us than, better than us at something, it's like we just get jealous. We can't cheer for them anymore. But no, really loving people means I actually would be willing to cheer for you when you're doing better in life than I am. Whatever better in life means, and I don't know what it means, but really loving people means tears and cheers. It means that we're happy with those who are happy. We cheer them on, even if they've excelled past where we feel like we're at in life. And we also cry with them when they're, when they're struggling when they're having a hard time. So it's, it's exhausting, but number four, really loving them, and now notice here I'm highlighting the them. Really loving them, because now when we talk about really loving them and family, sometimes we have this picture in our mind, right? And it's like, okay, well, maybe people I don't always get along with, but hey, they're family. But God has called us to love all people. At the proclamation of Jesus' birth, they say, I bring good news of great joy for all people. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that God had humanity, each person in mind, before he spun creation into existence. It means that God was happy to make his family bigger. So we look around this room, we say, okay, this is the family of God. We look around this community, we say, this is who God wants to be his family. We look around this state, we look around this country, we look around this world. People we agree with, people we don't agree with. People that are easy to love, people that are easy sometimes to hate. Them. What about really loving Them. Well, that's when we realize that really loving them is enduring. That's when we realize that really loving them means that we're going to have to conquer evil. But we won't have to do it alone. Romans chapter 12, this was at the end of the reading today. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. What makes you different? Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5 in his famous Sermon on the Mount. If you only love those who love you, what reward is there for that? If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Specifically, he names the tax collectors and the pagans. How are you different from anybody else in this world if all you do is love the people who are easy to love? How are you different? Jesus told a story in Matthew chapter 18 about a man who needed forgiveness, who needed the evil in his life to be, uh, who needed to be spared from the potential evil in his life. There's a man, he's a servant to a king, and he had a great debt to a king. Jesus comes up with a number where when we translate it today, we just say it's a big number, but really, like, in the context that Jesus was telling this story in, it means millions of dollars, an unimaginable debt. I mean, he's exaggerating. Like, you couldn't imagine how big this debt was. The servant came up to the king. He said, please, you have to forgive me. 
You have to forgive this debt. You have to overlook it. And the text tells us that the king released him and forgave his debt. Millions of dollars. Now the word there for forgive, everybody go ahead and look at this next slide. It says afiemi in the Greek and it's, it's to forgive. It's to let go. Turn to the person next to you and say, let it go. Did you have something in mind when you said it? When they said, let it go, did you say, uh-uh? <laughs> How do we conquer the evil? I know it's, it's really tempting not to forgive. It's very easy not to forgive. I would say it's culturally acceptable not to forgive. Jesus says, or the Bible tells us, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's a military word. It's literally to conquer. Either conquer evil or be conquered by evil. What, what, what does that mean? Well, think about it like this. On the playground growing up, let's say there were some kids who were throwing rocks, right? And you weren't the first one who threw the rock, but the rock was thrown. Our natural gut reaction is to take a rock ourselves because it's justified. Well, now the other person has a reason to throw the rock back, right? Okay, there's another one. Well, that, that made me pretty upset. Well, here's another rock. Well, now we're just slinging it back and forth, and we just keep on chucking rocks back and forth at each other, and eventually we kind of forget who started it, but eventually both of us are justified in our actions in a bit, and I can say, well, this other person, they started it, but if somebody walks in and they see this and they say, well, how are you different? Romans chapter 12, verse 2, be different. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world. Be different. They come in, they see, well, I know that some of you are able to justify the reason why you threw the rock, but at the end of the day, it's just more rocks. To be overcome by evil does not mean to be vanished, to be wiped out. It means to join the team of it. That's what it literally means in the Greek. And so you get to tell the evil, I'm joining you, or you are being redeemed into good and you're joining me. And how do we stop it? We stop it by letting it go. I'm not going to tell you today that that's easy. It is not. It might be the hardest thing that you ever have to do to let it go. But what other option do we have? Throw more rocks? Become obsessed with it? Sometimes we think if I obsess over it, if I just do enough about it, well, then, then I'll have it figured out. But when we obsess over something, we can't let it go. We think we're solving the problem. But maybe if you direct your attention to the screen, it, it actually looks a little bit more like this clip. Take a look. It happened again. <gasps> I thought it was behind me, but the dreams came back. I was up all night. I can't eat. I can't sleep. What's wrong? It haunts me. Nothing? Oh, Stephen, not this again. I forgot about it for years, but then I remembered that Avatar, the giant international blockbuster, used the papyrus font as its logo. Avatar, the movie from like nine years ago? Yeah, he just highlighted Avatar, he clicked the drop-down menu, and then he just randomly selected Papyrus, like a, like a thoughtless child just wandering by a garden, just yanking leaves along the way. And so now you're worried about the sequels that are coming out? They're making more? 
Yes, I, well, I think I heard that one. So they changed the artwork. They fixed it. Um, it looks similar. You just got away with it. This man, this professional graphic designer. Was it laziness? Was it cruelty? You've shown me this before. I don't even think this is literally papyrus. Maybe that was a starting point, but they clearly modified this. But whatever they did, it wasn't enough! <laughs> and now here I am doing what I vowed to never do again. Sitting outside his house, hoping to catch a glimpse of him, to see him do his little things, live his insane little life. Where else do you even see this font? Hookah bars? Shakira merch? <laughs> Off-brand teas? <laughs> the Avatar logo. Uh, yeah, it was tribal yet futuristic. Papyrus! <laughs> uh, sure. You know what you did? I know what you did! Are you having a hard time letting go of things? And you think that you're making a difference, but but the truth is, is you're the one who's suffering. And everyone else around you sees it. And even if they don't, your soul is experiencing it. I have a question for you. As Christians, it's easy for us to say that we're forgiving, but are you really forgiving? Are you really letting something go? Or are you trying to fix it? There's a difference between forgiving and fixing. And here's the truth about the evil in this world. You can't fix the evil in this world. You can't. God has called us to be a part of restoring the world, redeeming the world, reconciling the world, but you cannot fix the evil. That's the job of Jesus. Jesus has taken care of and is taking care of the evil in this world. But you can't fix the evil, but you can forgive those who have been touched by evil. Jesus finishes that parable in Matthew chapter 18 about the servant who went to the king and was forgiven, but then it says that the servant went to another servant and he found out that this guy owed him a few thousand dollars. Much, much less money. It says that he grabbed him by the throat and he demanded his instant payment. And you hear that, you're like, this, man, it's almost humorous. It's ridiculous, right? And I wonder if Jesus is saying to us, you think that you're fixing the problem, but you're just suffocating. You're suffocating someone else and maybe you're suffocating yourself. When the king heard about the servant had done, the king said, away with you. He'll be tortured. And Jesus says a very... Uh, Alarming warning after that he says, my father does the same thing for anyone who's unwilling to forgive. And I mean, who's the one who's walking into that? Who's the one who's sending the person into the prison? Is it God himself or is it actually us just voluntarily walking into that place because we think we're fixing it, but really it's just, I, I can't let it go. Do not let the offenses in your life wear you down, weigh you down, Hold you back. I had a friend in Minnesota, and he used to tell me this, and he had to deal with forgiving a lot of people in his life. His name is Mark, and he said, your life is more important than the offenses that hurt you. 
Your life is more important than the offenses that hurt you. Now, sometimes it's in silly ways and silly illustrations, but in this world, we are constantly reminded of the deep and of the depths and darkness of evil. I mean, we're reminded of examples that just seem way too hard to forgive, right? Last Saturday, there's a shooting in Buffalo. Last Sunday, there's a shooting in Orange County. A guy who grew up in this church, who I'm still really good friends with today, he was, he was two blocks away, I think two blocks away from the church in Orange County that, um, that had a shooting just last Sunday when it was happening. Just crazy, right? In Buffalo, there was a man who was killed, Deacon Patterson. He was a deacon at his church, and his son Jake now is left without a father. Jake's mother was interviewed this past week, and she said something that shook me to my core. She said, if it weren't for God, I would have a lot of malice in my heart, but he teaches us to forgive. I have to forgive him, because if I don't, I'm killing me. Her life is too important. Her life is too important to stop. And I'm telling you, I feel so uncomfortable reading that, because I don't know that I could do it. But don't you dare tell Tirza that she's weak because she forgives. Don't you tell her she's weak. That's the strongest thing I saw all week. To have the courage to forgive someone who disrupted, who ruined the state of her family. I have to forgive him because if I don't, I'm killing me. Sometimes when we're not forgiving somebody, we think that I'm holding their throat, but, but the truth is, is I'm, I'm holding my own throat. I'm suffocating myself. Now, it does not mean that you just ignore what's happened. Forgiveness is not weak. Romans chapter 12, right when we start to think, well, okay, well, everything's just happy-go-lucky, and maybe forgiveness, and maybe the conquering evil just means to be passive. No, it does not. Romans chapter 12, toward the end, it says, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. Okay, a little passive, right? A little doormat, right? If, if they are thirsty, give them something to drink. Okay, I mean, come on. I mean, my goodness, am I just supposed to let people abuse me? No, you're not. Because it finishes with this. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their head. You're opposing evil. Now, in those days, people who would listen to that story, they would know. Or that when they would read this letter, they would know. That in those days, to actually pour coal on, hot coal on somebody's head, what that was is in, in the, the event of a battle where there was an army that was invading a city, the people living in the city would stand on top of a wall and they would literally dump burning coals on the enemy to oppose them, to stop them. The coal that we get to pour on evil is real love. It overwhelms the evil. Let me give you one more object lesson here. Think about it like this. In the Bible, one way that we can understand evil is its emptiness. It's emptiness. This cup is empty, right? Empty cup. And sometimes when we think about the evil in the world, we think, I have to just try harder to get it out. Maybe I have to try harder to get the evil out of my life. Maybe I have to try harder to get the evil out of my neighbor's life. Maybe I have to try harder to get the evil out of this world, right? Now, what's the only thing that's in this cup? Just air, right? How do I get the air out of this cup? And maybe you're sitting there like, well, you could seal it and put a vacuum on it. Please don't ruin my illustration. But how do you get the air out of this cup? You have to overwhelm it with something else. And eventually it does get overwhelmed. Needed that. It gets overwhelmed. We don't just get to pull the evil out of the world. We've been given a gift that overwhelms the evil, that conquers the evil, that replaces the evil. 
It's not weak. It opposes evil. It stops it in its tracks. Let me emphasize these things. This is what forgiveness is not. It is certainly not weak. Forgiveness is not ignoring, forgetting, or excusing. Forgiveness is not tolerating abuse. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Reconciliation is something that forgiveness makes possible, but reconciliation takes the rebuilding of trust, and sometimes it will take years to get to that place. If someone's forgiven you, and you feel like, well, why aren't we just back to the way we are? You're going to have to earn the trust back. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. It's not the same as restoration. It makes way for those things, but it's not those things. And it also does not bar consequences. Jesus proves this to us in Matthew chapter 18 again. It says that if there's another believer who sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. So if you do have a problem with somebody, it doesn't help to go fix the issue by telling every single other person about it. Instead, Jesus says, no, go to the person who's wronged you. Deal with the evil itself. Don't create more evil. Don't throw more stones. You could justify talking poorly about that person, but at the end of the day, it's just more stones. It's made no difference. Jesus says, go to that person. But he also says this, if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you. Do you know what that means? That means if there is someone who is hurting you, who is sinning against you, and they're unrepentant, and they're not stopping, you should never be in a room alone with that person. You should never be alone in the room with that person. They haven't built that trust with you. If they are hurting you, if they are abusing you, if they are sinning against you and they haven't stopped and it isn't stopped for good, you should not be in a room alone with that person again. Until there is actual reconciliation, until there is actual restoration. But even before then, here's the good news. You don't have to be held by the throat of unforgiveness. You can forgive even today. Jesus says if he or she will not accept then treat that person as a pagan or corrupt tax collector. And you're like, ah, perfect. Now we get to shun them, right? Don't forget how Jesus treated pagans and tax collectors. He really loved them. I mean, he really loved them. When Jesus is on the cross and he's staring out at his executioners, he doesn't throw stones back. He doesn't chuck a spear their way. He doesn't get off the cross and put them up on it and nail them to where they belong. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know. The awareness, the spiritual and awareness of Jesus is astounding, isn't it? Psychologists talk about this. Oftentimes when we see the flaws in others, we blame it on their character. When we see the flaws in ourselves, we blame it on our circumstances. That's why if somebody else tells a lie, we say, you're a liar. And if we tell a lie, we're like, well, I mean, I don't know. I didn't have a lot of friends growing up. Jesus on the cross, he says, I know it's not you. It's the things around you. I refuse to let them take you down. I will oppose the evil. Jesus says the, thrones, the stones will be thrown, but they will hit me and they will stop at me. Hands will be crushed, but they'll be my hands. Crown of thorns will pierce my skull. A spear will go into my side. Jesus opposes evil and he conquers it. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know. It's one of the hardest things that we'll ever do. But Jesus shares his gifts with us. What Tirza did, say, I have to forgive because if I don't, I'm killing me. You can do it too. It's not impossible. 
This is how we forgive. We follow the example of Jesus. First, we, we ask God to forgive them. Jesus on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. Now, Jesus is God. He is actually forgiving them in that moment. I do believe that. But I believe it also sets an example for us. If I'm not ready for it, I can start by with that prayer say, Father, you forgive them. Pray that prayer. You forgive them. And oppose evil. But opposing evil, remember, it is not a doormat sort of theology of, well, just let everybody walk all over me. It is, actually, it's stopping it. When we talk about evil in the world, right, they've rebelled against my will. Well, you rebel against the evil. So the evil, I will not join your ways. I will not join your team. You will not conquer me. But the love of God, really loving people, that's what's going to conquer the evil. We oppose evil and then we release it. We release it. I think sometimes the reason why we have a hard time forgiving ourselves is because we haven't released forgiveness into the world. We haven't released forgiveness to our brothers and sisters. We haven't released the forgiveness that Jesus poured out for us on the cross. It's like the air that we breathe. In order to keep on breathing, you got to release some air. Try it. Breathe in. And I just hold it. I'm like, why can't I breathe anymore? I'm capable. Forgiveness is like breathing. We receive it. And we share it. It'll be one of the hardest things that you ever do. Because truly, there are so many reasons why people in your life who have wronged you do not deserve your forgiveness. But forgiveness is not about what someone deserves. It's about what we desire. Freedom. Do you want freedom from the evil in your life? Really love people. You want freedom from the evil? Really love people like Jesus. You want freedom from the pain, from the suffocating agony of unforgiveness? Really love them. It'll be one of the hardest things that you do. Certainly won't be weak. But you have a Savior who looked out at us and said, forgive them. And the natural response to receiving that forgiveness, to breathing it in, is breathing it out. Maybe the hardest person in the world for you to forgive is yourself. Would you go ahead and breathe in God's forgiveness? We ended the sermon last week with breathing in. I want to do it again. Breathe in God's forgiveness. God's forgiven you. And breathe it out. Breathe it in. And breathe it out. God's forgiven you. Who are you to say any different? Receive his forgiveness and know that it's like breathing. Really love the world. Really love them unconditionally. No auditions. Really. Really love them. It's intimate. There's truth and there's love in it. Really love them. It's exhausting. We'll join people in the emotional roller coasters of life. Really love people. It's enduring. It does take strength. But you are strengthened by the God who stands on the cross and he looks out at the sin of the world and he says, they don't know what they're doing. He forgives us. And as we breathe it in, we breathe this forgiveness out. Really love people and see how we can conquer evil through the love of Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand on up and sing.